X-Ray. Welcome to Grow PDX here on X-Ray FM. Grow PDX is a live calling radio show and podcast focused on gardening, farming, community systems, community food systems, and more. You know, plants for people, pollinators, and the planet. And now we turn to the host of Grow PDX, Weston Miller of Oregon State University. Thank you for joining us here on Grow PDX on X-Ray FM and on Facebook Live at The Oregonian. We're happy to have you with us. I'm your host, Weston Miller of OSU, joined by our digital producer, Diana Suarez. For today's show, we're going to interview Bob Falconer of the Master Beekeeper Program. And you guessed it, we're going to talk about the European honeybee and beekeeping on Grow PDX this afternoon. Yay bees! Yay bees! Mm. We'll get to know our guest in just a moment here. But first, we're going to celebrate our plant of the week. And oh. you've probably seen it. It's everywhere. The dandelion. It's dandelion. So, yeah. Diana Suarez, give us a description of what you see here. Yeah, I mean, it looks like a little yellow flower that you would see in your grass. This is quite a large one, I'd suppose. Um, the leaves are kind of almost kind of like arugula with like the spikiness and kind of longer form it there. Very indented. The name okay. dandelion is lion's tooth. Oh. And the leaves form that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go right there. Okay. For those of you who lion's teeth got it and then yeah some roots at the bottom there looks like has a pretty narrow root system looks like it goes in pretty like that would be a tap root and yeah, i tried okay. to dig it out i dug oh. it out with this right here oh, which that was a is carrot. a was no it's a hori hori knife and the okay. thing is i i only got about six inches down there before the root broke off uh -huh. so probably down below there's still life and it will come back because those mm -hmm. are really tough weeds mm -hmm. but overall um, dandelions are everywhere yeah. and a couple fun facts about dandelion is one is it's edible so the leaves are edible ah. um, the flowers can be made into dandelion wine yeah that's not bad they're pretty bitter it is and then um, Bob Falconer our guest is a beekeeper and dandelions are also important to bees how so mm. well the dandelions come out early in the year and represent one of the first uh, pollen gathering opportunities that the honeybees um, make use of so they're they're very important to the honeybees. So the bottom line is that they're here, they're hard to deal with, and they're food for honeybees, but there certainly are situations where people might not want dandelions. Um, really fancy lawns comes to mind of one of those places, and I'd <coughs> say for those folks, uh, focus on growing a really robust stand of grass and pop out individual dandelions if you want, but overall the best way to keep dandelions from growing is not to have the soil exposed. Once they they do grow, then you know really uh, vigorous hand tool removal, uh, doing it over and over again is going to be the best way to deal with it. Diana or Bob, anything else about dandelions you want to tell us? Nope. Okay. <laughs> well, we're going to get to know Bob real shortly here, but first let's check in with folks out there on Facebook Live at the Oregonian. Diana, who's joining in, and do they have any questions coming for us? Um, no questions, but I do want to say hi to our friends who have said hello. Hello, Rachel. Hello, Barbara, Santos. Oh, excuse me, Rochelle. Um, Paul, Linda, Becky, Audrey, and Ali. Hey, friends. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for joining us here on Grow PDX. And now, Bob Falconer, you are an OSU Extension Service volunteer, master beekeeper. Tell us about this program. Well, the Master Beekeeping Program is a partnership between the Oregon State Beekeepers Association. That's and professional beekeepers. Yes, they're Whoa. professional beekeepers. They're also hobby beekeepers. Um, you know, we have something like 79,000 hives of honeybees in this state. 
And, uh, you know, the, uh, the partnership between or Oregon State and, uh, and the Oregon State Beekeepers Association is kind of unique. We're the only state in the country that has a multi-year, uh, it's a three-year um, apprentice journey level and master level before you graduate as a master beekeeper. So this uh, is three years of training that you're getting from OSU and from the uh, beekeeping organization in Oregon. That's not a small commitment. Yeah, no. that's like an undergraduate program. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and we're the only state in the, in the country that has mentors that help the beginning beekeepers. Um, so we uh, have probably, since 2012, we have certified over 300 apprentices, uh, beekeepers here in Oregon. There's slightly fewer, about 150 journey level. And then there's nine, including one in Idaho, um, that are on the master level. Okay, and are there, is there a lot of demand for education in beekeeping these days? You know, I think that uh, bees are riding a, a high in popularity. They, uh, the, 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 new, the new backyard chicken, if you will. <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah, bees are popular. And yeah, bees are, are super imp uh, popular now, but why are they so important? Why do we need to keep them around? Well, you know, whole articles and even books have been written about this, but I'm going to try to condense it into three short statements. Um, there's $19 billion involved in pollination to agriculture. Two out of every three bites you put in your mouth come from pollinated plants. And the future of agriculture, the diversity of, of what we have to eat um, and, and the animals that we grow all depend on bees. And not just honeybees, but also pollinators in general. So, and honeybees are sort of the most charismatic of and well-known of the pollinators, mm -hmm. and they and other pollinators are in trouble these days. What are the many factors involved in pollinator decline? Well, there's been a lot of publicity um, on insecticides, particularly, you know, as you know, the neonicotinoids, um, but that's not the only that's thing. That's part of the package, but there's more. There's more. There's, uh, we have a tremendous problem with varroa mites. Um, we also have a problem, at least with commercial beekeepers, in uh, the bees getting fed a monofloral diet. They get taken to one plant in a field, and then they get taken to another plant, maybe a different one. For example, right about now, there's probably a lot of honeybees down in California pollinating almonds. Is that correct? Yeah, they're just finishing up the almonds and, and the plums down in Central California, and then they'll be heading up the road to uh, Washington for the apple blossoms. So. Okay, so bees get around. And so the, 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 the pesticides, the food, the mites, habitat loss are all major problems going on for pollinators these days. Yeah. Yeah, and um, for for all of us out there who are worried about our little uh, six-legged friends, uh, what can we do to promote pollinator health? Well, in, in the case of dandelions, the plant of the week, you could mow your grass less often. Mm -hmm. um, you Great. can plant more plants. Uh, there are plenty of references out there that will tell you what are, what are bee-friendly plants, or you can do like I do and just go to the nursery and see what the bees are visiting. Oh, that's smart. <laughs> and what are some of your favorite pollinator plants, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, there's, there is a, a plant native to Oregon, and it's called uh, the scorpion weed. Um, the scientific name is Phacelia tanacetifolia. 
It's also known as Bee's Friend is my favorite name for it. <laughs> Scorpion weed sounds a little intimidating, but Bee's Friend is really inviting. Yeah. It, it makes great honey. The bees <laughs> love it, and, okay. uh, and the other pollinators love it too. So, And I'm going to go ahead and add to the list that there's many, many different plants that people can grow as simple as things as rosemary and lavender. Um, also, meadow foam is another eight native annual plant that the bees seem to like an awful lot. Well, that's, um, that's yeah. Do, does the bee diet change the honey a lot? I never thought about that. That's a great question yeah. for Bob. Yeah, well, you know, the uh, honey is a con- condensation of all the plant nectars yeah, that, that the bees sense. have gathered. So, um, yeah, it has a major influence, but bees go to so many different flowers that a, a lot of uh, beekeepers, you really can't claim that it is a certain kind of honey. Okay. Um, most, pe- most people will label their honey wildflower. Uh-huh. Um, and so clover honey, when you buy it at the store, doesn't really mean all that much. Well, when they put these bees, commercially put these bees on a field of clover, about 70% of the bees will work the clover. And about 30% of the bees will go elsewhere because they know they need other things too. So okay. The, the 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 designations are very loose. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, Bob, getting into beekeeping is not a small undertaking, but I imagine it's worth the investment. Why do you love to keep bees yourself? Well, to me, it was it was a, a logical next step from horticulture. You know, from gardening. Um, you know, the the existence of the honeybee can make a difference in your success as a as a home gardener on pollination issues of of fruit trees and of vegetables. Um, But what really got me, you know, was is that even though we've been in association with honeybees for probably hundreds of thousands of years, mankind and honeybees, we're still learning things about them that are just amazing. It was just like gardening, we're just really scratching the surface in terms of what other life besides us has to teach us. Indeed. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to put it in perspective. Um, yeah, and what what? How did you get first involved with raising bees? Well, it's a slippery slope. <laughs> <laughs> there what, you go. In my particular case, <laughs> I had been talking about honeybees for quite a while, and my wife gave me a book on beekeeping for Christmas. Okay. Now, in my family, that's tantamount to permission. Okay, so your wife gave you permission, and it it went downhill from there. Oh, it it hasn't stopped. You went down the rabbit bee hole. Yeah, sorry. That's great. Yeah. You're with Grow PDX Radio Show. I'm your host, Weston Miller, with digital producer Diana Suarez. We're talking with Bob Falconer of the OSU Master Beekeeper Program. Bob, for someone who wants to get into beekeeping, what steps should they take? Well, I think the most important thing is to, number one, have a conversation with yourself and say, what do you want from the bees? And be honest. You know, um, the bees can offer you a lot of things. They can offer you honey. They can offer you pollination. You can raise them for beeswax. You can raise them for propolis. You can raise them just because you'd like to have them in your garden. For friendship. For friendship. And sparkles. They don't. (laughs) Um, the next thing you probably would want to do is join a local club because okay. they're very plugged into uh, what's going on. Got it. Cool. So it's, it's not something that you can really teach yourself. You really need to be with other people who know what they're doing. Well, I, I would never say you can't teach yourself, but I think that you, you can avoid making a lot of the same mistakes, you know, if you have 
somebody to provide you with other information. That's probably right. true of anything that you're trying to learn, I, in my mm -hmm. experience. <laughs> anyway, mm -hmm. um, just being realistic, <laughs> um, how much time and energy does it really tend to, to take to tend to a beehive? It is a very, um, it depends upon the time of year. In okay. the springtime is a beekeeper's uh, busiest time. Mm -hmm. From right about now, we're, we're getting new hives, we're the things are starting to grow, so the bees are busy. Then we take a couple months off, um, and the bees do all the work. They gather the honey, and at the end of July, we'll pull the honey and uh, extract the honey and, and maybe provide some maintenance work for the bees, like mite treatments and things like that. Mm -hmm. So it just depends on the time of year, but it's not a, a, a for a hobby level beekeeper, it's not a full-time thing. Got it. That's good to know. Cool. And can you provide a description, and even better that, can you show us a prop of some of the gear that you have for beekeeping? And here's Diana putting on the bee hood. Model modeling a basic beekeeper veil. She's got okay. it on completely backwards. Uh oh, that, okay. There's no work. better visibility there. Here we go. Oh, there we go. <laughs> okay, Magic. so um, you don't want to get stung, so you have some gear. So you have the suit and all. Tell us about that, but also tell us about the hive itself. Well, bees are not aggressive. Um, bees are defensive uh, sometimes. Some, some hives are more so than others. Uh, they will come out and defend their hive. When they're out in the field you know, visiting flowers, they have no hive to defend, so they are usually not aggressive. If you leave them alone, um, they will leave you alone. Okay. That, that's true of me also. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay, it's so amazing how many of these bee things are also can just true, translate true to in real life. life. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Bees. Tell life. us about the hive, Bob. <laughs> well, most of, most of us use um, what's called a Langstroth hive. It was a hive invented um, by a gentleman named Langstroth in the 1800s. And the reason we use it is because it allows us to manage the bees in a way that is not destructive to the bees. This um, is the typical box that people th This see. is the box that people see. Now, there are other other popular hives. Uh, there's Warre, and then there's a top bar hive. So, you know, there's even some of the old-fashioned things like, like Skeps, you know, but most people uh, that are in the hobby or in the business do, don't use that equipment. And the, the standard box, but bees will go and just make a home in a hollowed-out tree or something like that as well. Yeah, that's their preferred home, um, is a hollowed-out tree with the entrance about 35 feet high. Um, but and some, in the old days, they used to cut out those sections of trees, and they called them gums. And they would just stack these gums on a board in, in, the, in the backyard. And, but you can't extract any honey from that unless you totally destroy the hive. So, Right. Yeah, you mentioned that keeping them in a tree, and the, that might be the best way to do it. Um, what, how, what can we really do to keep our bees safe and ourselves safe in living in a city yeah, for urban areas, yeah. are there special precautions? Well, there's, there's challenges in urban areas. Actually, um, there is evidence that says that in an urban area, there's more pollination opportunities for all pollinators, including bees, mm. um, because there's more plants being grown, more gardens being grown than in a typical agricultural setting. Mm -hmm. You know, our typical crop rotation here in, the, in Northwest Oregon involves two grasses, wheat and, and one of the, the lawn grass seed plants, uh, maybe some clover and maybe uh, crimson clover, maybe red clover. 
that doesn't represent a whole lot of year-round food opportunities for bees. So we depend a lot on, on wild plants in particular here in Northwest Oregon. And introduced um, plants like the blackberry. Exactly. The blackberry, Himalayan, or Armenian, whichever you want to call it, um, is a very important honey plant here. Mm-hmm. So. Bob, for someone who's already into beekeeping, what are the benefits of the Master Beekeeper Program? Well, for people, it's very similar to the Master Gardener Program in as much as people recognize the need for knowledge. Uh, And it's all about where you are satisfied with your knowledge. If you wanna take what I call a deeper dive into the subject, you know, the Master Gardener Program, the Master Beekeeping Program, offer you a chance to do that in a in a very structured way where you can really get the best chance of learning it's a learning community in other words and you mm-hmm. get hooked up with mentors and you get access to good information if folks are just looking for general information about how to go about beekeeping where do you recommend they look well the master beekeeping program has has a website um, as the master gardeners do um, and that's a good place to start but there is lots and lots of literature uh, out there you know magazine articles books there's radio programs (laughs) just like this (laughs) this is grow pdx radio show and podcast we're talking about beekeeping with bob falconer of the master beekeeper program bob will be staying with us as we take your gardening and landscaping questions for a final segment of the show Give us a shout at 503-233-9729, or you can post your questions on the video feed on Facebook at The Oregonian. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Weston Miller. We'll be back in a minute. Support for X-Ray FM comes from Portland Nursery. For over 100 years, Portland Nursery has provided Portland residents with a wide selection of healthy plants and expert gardening advice, community-oriented and family-owned. Portland Nursery, a passion for plants, a nursery for plant people. Located on 50th and Stark and on 90th and Division. X-Ray FM is supported by People's Food Co-op. Since 1970, People's has worked to offer responsibly sourced products at fair prices. Working with over 40 local farms to provide fresh, organic, farm-direct produce year-round. People's is collectively managed by community members throughout Portland. Located on Southeast 21st and Division, Peoples is open 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. More information about their location on 21st and Division at their weekly farmer's market every Wednesday from 2 to 7 p.m. and online at peoples.coop. Welcome back to Grow PDX. It's time to take your gardening questions. It's a regular feature of our show. And let's get back to that dandelion. Bob, in your experience, what's going to be the best way to manage a dandelion to handle them? Well, Weston, (laughs) there is always manual labor, you know, and for a lot of people that have small yards, that probably represents the best option. There's um, options for removal that involve mechanical advantage, but I think you demonstrated what you're up against with with a dandelion that root system is very um, is very extensive and if you leave any of it there you'll probably get them growing back of course there's always the chemical option um, to think weed and feed you know the 
the weed part of weed and feed is a um, an herbicide, herbicide that will uh, take the broadleaf plants out of the grass without harming the grass. So it kind of represents a hierarchy of control, starting with minimum input, uh, or starting with maximum input from the human and minimum input on the chemical side. So Yeah, and I would go ahead and say if people do have a major dandelion problem and are thinking that herbicides might be useful to use a more of a broad spectrum herbicide and to spot treat the actual dandelions and then to come back and follow up by planting grass seed in that location to try to keep the dandelions from growing there. And Diana, do we have any questions via Facebook or shout outs to folks who are, are joining us? Well, I personally have a question Please. about bees. Um, how do bees out in the wild pick a place to, to make a nest that is not made uh, by somebody hive. who's trying a hive that's not, you know, yeah. Bees seem to be hardwired with the requirement for about two cubic feet of space. Um, I don't think they think enough ahead to say, okay, we're gonna be growing. But they go in there and um, scout bees do this. Uh, there are bees whose job in the hive is to scout for new nectar sources, new okay. pollen sources, and, and if, the, if the hive swarms, they're looking for a new place to live. Mm-hmm. When they go out and evaluate these places that are available, you know, they'll, they'll look and see you know how big of a space it is um unfortunately for a lot of people you know swarms that will take up residency in their in their house their attic their the columns out in front of their mm-hmm. front porch yeah. um, but it seems to be all based on size um and then they go back to the hive and they communicate this uh this is another one of the dances that we don't understand really well um, it's very similar to the waggle dance where yeah. they're trying to communicate a new nectar source. So, so fascinating. Yeah. Bob, can you give us a little more detail about the communication that goes on in this colonial organism mm-hmm. of yeah, the honeybee? Can you give us an example of the waggle dance? <laughs> and, and, and the camera's right <laughs> over here, Bob. You don't want to see that. <laughs> sure, the um, bees communicate in, in more ways than just dancing. They can communicate chemically through pheromones. Uh, Interaction of the hive is controlled mostly by pheromonal activity. Um, They also vibrate and they can communicate that way. This is one of the areas that we really don't understand fully because it gets into some really heavy duty organic chemistry to, to sort out these pheromones and the effects uh, uh, that they have in behavior. Okay. Bob, you are also a Master of Gardener volunteer, and part of that service is you answer questions when they come in. We have telephone helplines all over, or three places here in the metro area. People can look up metromastergardeners.org to hook up with Master Gardeners. In that role, what are two of the more common questions you're getting this time of year here in mid or early April? Well, I think, as you well know, the Oregonians get a pent-up desire to garden about this time of year and one of the one of the things that we're hearing a lot is can I when do I plant Um, and can I plant this can I plant that Um, and and that just depends upon the type of plant that you're dealing with a lot of people are wanting to get started on their vegetable gardens and and things like that so and the answer is depends really is also weather dependent and this year since it's been a really wet wet winter and also really cold soils are pretty slow to warm up and 
then, in your opinion, is it ready? Are we ready to start planting? Can people start to put in? Can I give broccoli? a Can I give a rule of thumb? Sure. Uh, Let's call it a guideline. This, this, is, this is an old Oregonian guideline. <laughs> you plant the peas with the peepers and everything else when the white clover blooms. All right. So when the white clover blooms, I got it. Well, and let's say potatoes would be a good crop for people to plant right about mm -hmm. now, though, yeah. even though white clover's not blooming quite yet. Right, right. It's uh, and there's a whole bunch of plants, you know, the mostly in the in the greens category, but things like beets and and carrots, carrots. can be planted now. Spinach. Someone mentioned arugula. Yeah. Arugula know. would be great. I don't know why anybody would want to plant arugula. But. <laughs> Mustard greens. Um, and then with potatoes, do you have any suggestions on how to grow potatoes? They're relatively easy to grow, but to get to maximum harvest. You know, the old way of doing it was putting them on hills or in a, in a raised bed so that you can get more warmth to the uh, roots earlier. Mm -hmm. um, the longer it has to grow, the better the, the crop should be. Of course, you're going to want to be careful if you've had grown potatoes before and have had problems with fungus or anything like that. You're not going to want to plant them in the same place again. Right. And you uh, should generally rotate your crops anyway, right? Crop rotation is advised to try to move plants of the same family around the garden over mm -hmm. time and not planting the same crop or the same crop family over and over again in one location. Mm -hmm. And I'll go ahead and just add for the potatoes, um, now would be a great time to go out to nurseries and garden centers and get potato starts. Uh, or seed potato rather. You don't want to use the potatoes from your grocery store. Those can have diseases on them. When you get your seed potato, you might want to quarter them. So cut those potatoes in quarters, let them sit for you know, as long as long uh, overnight even um, to heal over a little bit. And then those plant potato chunks can be planted fairly deeply into the ground. One technique that we have a lot of success with is to dig a trench down the middle of the mm -hmm. bed where we want the potatoes to grow and then put the, t the, the chunk of potato a couple inches underneath the soil there. And then as the potato is growing, we cover it with soil so that it's a really long plant. Mm -hmm. And that way there's lots of nice crumbly soil and lots of honking potatoes growing there. Um, and then when potatoes flower, and that's gonna be sometime in June or so, at that time you can cut the water to them and not add any more irrigation water and let them sit in the soil for a couple of weeks if you want them to be um, relatively cured and, and store well. But you can also just harvest them and eat them with that soft skin and they're really, really good. Hmm. Nothing better than a new potato. Do you Nothing have better than a new potato. <laughs> Wesley, do you have any potato varieties that you really enjoy? Yeah, I'd say any thin skin potato is gonna be good. The Yukon Golds, et cetera, are really nice. Uh, I would generally avoid the thicker skin, russet type potatoes for yeah. a garden setting. Okay. The, the new potatoes, as Bob mentioned, are gonna be the varieties. And there's dozens of different varieties that are out there. And if you go to a good nursery or garden center now, they're gonna have a handful of different varieties and they're all gonna treat you right. Also, this time of year, you could, uh, while you're at the garden center, you could look for some asparagus roots. Um, plant those for the future. That's a good point. And asparagus is a perennial. It's going to, you're not going to get a lot of food in the first couple of years. It's kind of hard to not harvest the spears as they're <laughs> coming in. Uh, but you'd want to be patient and wait till at least the second, third year before you really start harvesting much on that asparagus. 
Well, you have been listening to Grow PDX radio show and podcast. Thanks to our guest, Bob Falconer, for the Master Beekeeper program for joining us. And the show is produced by me, Weston Miller of OSU, and Diana Suarez and Will Romy of X-Ray FM. Join us again next week at 1 p.m. We'll be talking with Lucy Hardiman of the Hardy Plant Society and Portlandia, an upcoming plant sale. And, of course, we'll be taking your garden questions. You can catch a podcast of the show at Grow PDX on Facebook. Take care. Support for X-Ray FM comes from Hi-Fi Farms, a Portland-based clean cannabis company that seeks to empower local organizations in social justice and ethical practices. Through lobbying for socially responsible small businesses alongside the Main Street Alliance, working on energy standards in the cannabis industry with the Resource Innovation Institute, and putting a microphone to the best and most distinctive of Portland with X-Ray FM. When they go low, we go high. Hi-Fi Farms. More information available at hififarms.com. X-Ray.